Welcome to the Kotki Ride Home for Wednesday, February 23rd, 2022. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, why does Google still have the I'm feeling lucky button? And what do the ways Google search has changed mean for us as a society? Plus, a proposed global library of underwater audio with a perfect name. And what fish are usually talking about when they communicate acoustically. And finally, Kraft Heinz is throwing their hat in the plant-based alternatives ring. But how do plant-based alternatives actually stack up to real meat? Here are some of the cool things from the news today. Have you ever visited killedbygoogle.com? It's a site that keeps track of all of the apps, hardware, products, and services that Google has ever, well, killed. Heavy hitters like Google Reader and Google Plus, but also 262 others, including Google URL Shortener, Hangouts on Air, Google Trips, Google Buzz, Google Wave, remember that one, Google Cardboard, and YouTube Community Contributions for Captions, a particular particularly egregious killing, in my opinion. Now, I've done a lot of work with Google over the years as a video creator on YouTube. I've attended a lot of their summits, gotten to speak with employees across lots of different projects and disciplines. So I know that when Google sunsets a product, it's usually after a lot of careful thought and extensive feedback sessions with users. Ultimately, it tends to come down to how many people are actually using it and how much it costs to maintain. Also, sites like Killed by Google make it look like Google is trigger-happy with offing products, but part of that is just that they create so many, largely thanks to their allotment of time for employees to pursue and work on any random ideas that they have. Some of those will stick, and a lot of them won't. So innovation goes. Now, I could talk about all the products Google has retired that many of us are still mad about, Google Reader and YouTube video responses being high up there, but what I really want to talk about is one that they haven't retired, despite the fact that hardly anyone uses it, and based on one admittedly outdated stat from 2007, it costs the company over $100 million in revenue each year. It is... The I'm feeling lucky button. That other button to the right of the Google search button, beneath the search bar on the google.com homepage, it bypasses the search results and takes you directly to the website of the top results. It's been there since the day that Google launched in November of 1998, back when the URL was still google.stanford.edu. And it's still there. This morning, I tried it out for the first time in years, I guess feeling some longing for the end of winter, I typed in springtime and hit I'm feeling lucky and was immediately taken to Merriam-Webster's dictionary definition of the word. Not super exciting, but neither was my search term. So I tried to channel some common search queries and went for, is this headache COVID? Expecting some kind of CDC or WHO article, like is displayed above all the results when you actually go to the results page, I was instead taken to an article from a health-based media outlet that I've never heard of. How to break up with someone was a little bit more reassuring. That went to a teen-focused webpage titled How to Break Up Respectfully. 
And what is an NFT? Directed to The Verge's excellent explainer piece, which I do think is one of the best on the internet. So if I wanted to put my complete trust in the top search result by using I'm Feeling Lucky, I guess it wouldn't be so bad. But, you know, for the most part, I'm Feeling Lucky does feel like a relic of a different era of the internet. One more curious. The internet as a leisure activity, not a necessary everyday tool. A quick sidebar here, I even found out there is an I'm Feeling Lucky feature for Google Photos. On both iOS and Android, if you touch and hold the Google Photos icon, there's an I'm Feeling Lucky option in the pop-up. It then populates a random search term and shows you all of the photos in your library that apply. For example, mine showed me St. Patrick's Day and when I tried it again, California, and then the perhaps too broad but oddly sparse United States. But anyways, going back to that $100 million revenue loss, that number came from internal analysis in 2007 and is based on the fact that the I'm feeling lucky button in bypassing the search results also bypasses advertisements, hence the huge cut in potential revenue, at least back then. But for such a huge cost, there must be a lot of people using it, and that's why they keep the product, right? Also, no. That same year, back in 2007, then-Google exec Marissa Mayer said that only 1% of Google searches use the I'm feeling lucky button. That was 14 years ago. Surely even less use it now. Especially because for the way that a lot of us use Google today, it doesn't even show up. If you had asked me yesterday whether the button was still there, I wouldn't have been able to confidently answer. Mostly because I can't remember the last time I actually went to google.com to do a search. I usually just search in my address bar, or since I predominantly use Google Chrome, the version of the search page that appears when I open a new tab. But I'm feeling lucky isn't on that page. It only shows up when you go to actual google.com. So I would guess even less people use it now which maybe means it doesn't cost quite as much. And since a lot of other things have changed over at Google.com over the years, I wonder if now the button is losing Google money in a different way. I started thinking about this when I saw an article published in Real Life Magazine yesterday by Adam Willems asking why Google still has the I'm feeling lucky button at all. And while Willems never gets to an exact concrete answer, they do raise some other thought-provoking questions. First, let's talk about why the button came to be in the first place. Quoting Willems, Stephen Levy, author of In the Plex, How Google Thinks, Works, and Shapes Our Lives, explains that Google's co-founders included I'm Feeling Lucky on their webpage in a startling bid of confidence that implied that, unlike the competition, Google was capable of nailing your request on the first try. But the button always hinted at larger infrastructural aspirations. Google co-founder Larry Page later admitted that I'm Feeling Lucky was intended to replace domain name-based navigation on the internet. Users would go to Google to visit any homepage rather than head to a homepage directly. Read in this context, I'm Feeling Lucky feels less like the user's declaration and more like the host's, a symbol of Google's belief in its own infallibility, as well as its capacity to remake the internet in its own image, end quote. And that is basically what Google has done. Yes, it was finally dethroned from most visited domain on the internet at the end of last year thanks to the almighty TikTok, but Chrome is still used more than any other of the web browsers combined, and several of those browsers baked Google search right into their address bars. 
Further than that, since 2012, Google's Knowledge Graph has been answering people's search queries without them ever having to click any of the results. Responses sourced from other websites are displayed right alongside the results. Want to know what day Passover starts this year? The capital of Nepal? How many centimeters are in a yard? That last one will even be answered for you straight in the address bar without you even having to click enter to go to the results page. Quoting another real-life magazine piece from 2020, In 2019, an investigation by The Markup found that Google was devoting 41% of the first page of its mobile search results to its own products, including answers delivered by Knowledge Graph and properties like Google Flights, Google Translate, and YouTube. This pushes competitors down or out. Search traffic to Genius.com plummeted after Google started displaying song lyrics on results pages. TripAdvisor laid off 200 people after losing traffic to Google's competing services. Google makes the most money when, long-term, they can addict searchers to their platform, the SEO expert Rand Fishkin told the markup. If Google can train you, don't go to Genius.com, don't go to TripAdvisor, don't go to the restaurant's website, just come to Google, always come to Google, then they win. End quote. And so Larry Page's admission that I'm feeling lucky was in part to get people thinking they should go to Google before ever going straight to any other site's homepage first has become pretty close to reality for many users. And that's what makes me think that to the extent that anyone is actually using the feature still, it could be losing them more of their own money now. I'm feeling lucky, even though you start at Google, is the quickest way off of Google. A standard Google search these days is more likely to keep you on Google with their cards offering blurbs from Wikipedia, the ability to scroll through the cast of a movie that you're watching, and then all the other movies that one actor has been in. Then maybe you click the tab to see where to stream one of their other movies later, or upcoming showtimes of it in your area. Then you look at restaurants nearby the movie theater, reading reviews, looking at photos of their interior, checking their COVID policies, and getting directions, all without ever leaving Google. If you'd used I'm feeling lucky to search the actor in the movie you were watching, you'd probably just go straight to their IMDb page and maybe go down a similar rabbit hole of film trivia on IMDb, but none of that would have been on Google. But more so than whether or not anyone still uses this button or whether or not Google earns or loses any money on it, I'm more interested in what all of those changes to Google do to us. Willems references a 2008 research paper from education librarians at Queen's University in Canada about what they dubbed the I'm feeling lucky syndrome. And I want to quote what Willems said about it. But as I do, think more about what I just said about how Google has changed since 2008, about the knowledge graph and quick answers, more so than the I'm feeling lucky button that they're actually talking about here. Quoting Willems, I'm feeling lucky syndrome is the belief that a single query can be answered by a single website. The button epitomizes the notion that web searching is easy, whereas deep thought and skill are required for more sophisticated search. This framework implies that I'm feeling lucky discourages the messy, productive chaos of self-directed search in favor of a convenient, Google-centric singularity. Now that logging on is irrelevant and the internet is not an alternative zone but an everyday aspect of the world we know, directing our own experience becomes a more sprawling challenge." End quote. I'm feeling lucky syndrome was dubbed 13 years ago, before the knowledge graph, before I'm doing my own research meant briefly glancing at some Facebook memes. 
I'm not sure how well any of us were ever taught to research in school, or at least taught how to seek out other people's research and critically analyze multiple sources to come to our own conclusions, but it is certainly easier than ever to fall into the trap of accepting the first answer you come across. The sheer convenience of that can stop many of us who know better from investigating further or questioning the source or how it came to be the first one that we found. I am constantly warring with myself over the convenience offered and the pernicious underbelly to that convenience. I like Google. I know a lot of really great individual employees there who are trying to make genuine ethical change. And as far as giant corporations go, you know, it's not the worst, but it's also not as innocent and carefree as the amiable little I'm feeling lucky button would like you to believe. I'll leave you with these words from Willems, quote, Google was born in a different tech culture from our own, a different internet than Google in large part created. At the time of its founding, the company's branding channeled a prevailing sense of leisure and optimism and a democratic sensibility. The internet, and even its corporate culture, was about converting spectators to participants, outsiders to insiders. That sensibility has long since congealed into something resembling its opposite. Your search is not your own. It's Google's. End quote. We've got a lot of cool libraries and archives in the world. There's the Doomsday Seed Vault in Svalbard, the Internet Archive, the Peridos Sourdough Library in Belgium. Now, a group of international scientists want to create an audio library of the sounds of underwater ecosystems. It would catalog whales and squeaks of marine mammals, the buzz of boats, and the whir of wind and ice. The library could help researchers as they study particular species, the impact of human-driven climate change, and more. But the best part is the proposed name, the Global Library of Underwater Biological Sounds, or GLUBS. GLUBS! Isn't that the best name for a library of underwater audio? I love it. Quoting Smithsonian Magazine, the plan highlights using hydrophones to hear and record the sounds of the underwater world. Researchers also proposed integrating other tools like GoPros used by citizen scientists, artificial intelligence learning systems, and phone apps to collect and analyze data per a statement. In the web-based sound library, users would be able to sift through known and unknown sounds, distribution maps of where species were heard, and collections of passive noises made when animals eat, swim, or crawl around. Various research institutions have their own sound libraries, but still a global platform that brings together existing libraries would give accessibility to more data and allow for more collaboration, reports Stephen Luntz for IFL Science. Besides being a tool for monitoring biodiversity, the recorded sounds may be used to help degraded areas come back to life. One study published in Nature Communications in 2019 showed that when researchers played recordings of a thriving coral reef ecosystem through a speaker in a coral-bleached area, fish were lured back and moved in, reports Allie Hirschlag for the Washington Post. Twice as many fish set roots near the speakers than in areas with no enhanced ambiance. End quote. Aaron Rice, a researcher at Cornell speaking on a different project, believes that the ability of the public to access sounds from fish will help them connect more to the animals and increase their interest in ocean preservation. 
Rice is the lead author on a new study published last month in the journal Ichthyology and Herpetology that found fish rely on acoustic communication quite a bit more than we previously thought. Rice and his team found that the acoustic communication varies across different species and has evolved at least 33 different times since ancient sturgeons first started communicating acoustically 155 million years ago, according to The Guardian. And if you were to hear the honks and boops and hums described by the researchers, you might wonder what it is the fish are talking to each other about. And according to Rice and his team, mostly sex and food. They noted more elaborate sounds are produced within those contexts. So maybe one day soon you'll be able to log onto a website, pick anywhere in the world any type of fish, and listen in on them flirting with each other over lunch. And if all of this underwater sea creature talk has got you itching for more oceanic audio content, I'd like to recommend a podcast from some friends of mine called The Cephalopodcast. It hasn't put out a new episode in about six years, but there are 16 highly produced episodes hosted by the giant squid stravaganza. In each episode, mixed with lots of glubs and bubbles and splashing and other delightful marine sounds, the giant squid stravaganza waxes pensively about humans destroying his home, his love for toast, his lost love Melissa, and occasionally shares musical interludes from his band Crush the Crustaceans. He even released a relaxation tape. Just trust me on this one. Link is in the show notes. Plant-based hot dogs from Kraft Heinz could soon be coming to your grocery store shelves. The company announced yesterday that it's forming a joint venture with The Knot Company, a Chilean startup that makes plant-based substitutes of meat as well as eggs and milk. They're the latest in a string of major brands announcing plant-based plans. Tyson Foods has plant-based patties and sausages now, and PepsiCo is partnering with Beyond on a line of plant-based snacks and drinks. For Kraft Heinz, it is one part of an overall brand revamp, quoting CNBC. A year and a half ago, the company revealed a master plan for Oscar Mayer that included new packaging, simpler ingredient lists, and marketing that focuses on its status as an iconic American brand. The branding changes came after the company wrote down Oscar Mayer's value in the fourth quarter of 2018 and again in the second quarter of 2019, end quote. Kraft Heinz U.S. President Carlos Abrams Rivera told CNBC that their new plant-based substitutes are an attempt to democratize plant-based foods because currently most options are still prohibitively expensive compared to their meat counterparts. Now, I talk a lot about plant-based meat alternatives on this show because it's a skyrocketing industry at the moment, and it usually includes some pretty fascinating science. But how do plant-based meats actually compare to their meaty forebears? Environmentally, plant-based options are obviously better for the most part. Ethically, that's up to the individual and how you might feel about eating animals or their byproducts. But nutritionally, it can vary. Lifehacker recently outlined some of the differences. So Impossible Burger Patties and Beyond Meat Burger Patties are pretty toe-in-toe with beef burger patties. They all clock in around 20 grams of protein, and while the Impossible and Beyond Burgers have a bit more fat and calories than beef, that largely depends on how you cook the beef patty. Where it really changes is the carbs. A beef patty is zero carbs, 
while the Beyond Burger has three carbs and the Impossible Burger has nine. Of course, that is before you add any buns or other toppings to any of them. Now, on the box, the two alternatives have more sodium, but that's because they come pre-seasoned. So if you're adding any seasoning to your beef patty, it could still be a toss-up. Meanwhile, more traditional alternatives like tofu and seitan are also pretty comparable to servings of lean meat, just about matching them in protein and calories, although seitan is lacking a few amino acids that you'd want to pick up from other sources like beans. And yes, there are many other factors to consider when it comes to nutrition. Things like calories and carbs are certainly not the only things that you should be looking at, and a Lifehacker article is not the same as a larger, more comprehensive study. But it is good to know, if you are considering switching to a plant-based alternative, that you'll probably be getting just as much protein, but that you might want to cool it with any add-ons if you're really counting your carb and sodium grams. Well, that is definitely it from me for today. Went a little long there on the Google segment. Considered titling the episode, Oops, All Google. But uh, hopefully you found it as interesting as I did. And as always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media and Kotke.org. I am Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again tomorrow.